Travis Bader, and this is the Silvercore Podcast. Silvercore has been providing its members with the skills and knowledge necessary to be confident and proficient in the outdoors for over 20 years, and we make it easier for people to deepen their connection to the natural world. If you enjoy the positive and educational content we provide, please let others know by sharing, commenting, and following so that you can join in on everything that Silver Horse stands for. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a member of the Silver Corps Club and community, visit our website at silvercore.ca. Silvercore has been helping others deepen their connection with the natural world for well over 20 years, and I'm excited to have the proprietor of LearnYourLand.com, a committed and passionate forager and naturalist, join me today. Welcome to the Silvercore podcast, Adam Harriton. Thanks, Travis. Nobody's ever called me a proprietor of Learn Your Land, so I like that one. <laughs> yeah, it's got a bit of a ring to it, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds fancy. It, sounds, it makes yeah. me out to be better than I actually am, I think, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> People call me worse. Well, I, you know, I'm looking at your, your workshops you're doing, your YouTube channel, your website, your social media, the amount of content that you're putting out to help people deepen their connection with the natural world. It's impressive. How did this start? That's a good question. It all started with nutrition for me. Yeah. Most people don't get into nature through nutrition, I find, but maybe more and more these days they are. Okay. But that was my gateway into nature. It wasn't like I grew up this way, but more and more... I'm figuring out that a lot of people have a similar story. They didn't grow up in the outdoors and they're trying to find a way into there. And so however you could do it, more power to you. For me, it was nutrition. I was interested in eating healthy. And I started coming across research that wild foods are actually pretty healthy foods. I thought, this is great. It was fun to spend time outdoors, but it was more than just hiking for me. I started just hiking, but I felt Mm. like something was missing. I wanted a connection, a deeper connection to everything that was around me. I just wanted to know the names of things, not just the edible foods, but it was mostly the edible foods, the plants, the mushrooms, some animals as well, uh, that really solidified my connection to nature. So that was it. And then I felt like I needed to give back. And so to give back, I wanted to teach what I learned and what I'm still learning today. So you had yourself a a well-lucrative job working for a business and you said, I know. I want to just walk away from all of that and start my own business. Learnyourland.com. Is that scary? Are you saying my former job was lucrative? Well, I mean, you're, <laughs> I, perhaps I'm, <laughs> perhaps I'm uh, reading a little further into it. W- was that one of the reasons why you, you left? Cause it wasn't as lucrative as you wish it to be. I mean, I, so I was in my, I guess, mid twenties at the time when I decided to walk away from a I guess it was a more stable job. It wasn't that lucrative, but at the time, I didn't really have a concept of money. I just thought, if I'm making money, that's a good thing. Mm. And I was making more money than I was ever making up until that point in my life. But again, I wasn't that old, and it's not like I'm that old right now. But I found that when I was inside doing my job, which was a nutritionist at the time, I would look outside and just think, I want to be out there. I don't want to be inside. If I could Mm. even just do what I'm doing inside, outside... That would make a, a, di- a complete difference in my life. And I thought, I just need to get out there. But fortunately, they cut my position. 
So I didn't have oh. a choice in the matter. They, they offered me another position, but they cut the position. I thought, I'll just take this a sign from the great beyond to try to start my own thing. Yeah. And I started it and it was called Learn Your Land. And it led me here today talking to you on this podcast. <laughs> so how did you start that? Like, what was the process? Like, I look at myself when I started Silver Court, let's see, I was 94, I was in high school and I was doing the training and learning about all the different things I was interested in and training others. And then I started a sole proprietorship by 2003, I incorporated it and every step of the way I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I, I think I have to be incorporated. Like they got limited companies, incorporated companies, but it sounds fancy. I think I have to do that. I might, I must need a business bank account and I'm just fumbling my way through at every single step. I didn't have too many mentors out there that were in I didn't have any mentors that were in my sphere. I had one mentor who was a businessman and, but he was on a completely different level than myself. I had no idea how to start. However, when I look back, I know exactly how to get here now. Um, and I'm happy to share that with anybody who wants to, to know. How did, how did you start? It sounds like our stories are fairly similar. I didn't know at first. I had a lot of passion. I was so hungry to start something. And I read a lot of books. I love reading. And I feel like if I can't find an in-person mentor, somebody older than me who's been through the ropes and knows what they're doing and who's willing to teach it to the next generation, I'll find those mentors in books. And I still feel that that's the truth today, which is why I read a lot. Every single mm. day I'm reading something. And so I was just reading a lot of business books. You know, I was reading a ton of nutrition books, a ton of nature books, wild food books, but at the same time, stacks of marketing books and stacks of business books. And a lot of these were old. A lot of these were old, were old like personal development and self-help books, but a lot mm. of them were more modern with tactical advice on how to start something. But a lot of the action steps that I took moving forward, you know, getting the LLC or doing things legally, yeah, yeah. that was out of necessity. I stumbled into that stuff because I wasn't doing it correctly. And somebody said, you're doing it incorrectly. <laughs> right. You need to do this. You need to do that. And I thought, oh, I didn't know that. Like I would lead events and I hope nobody from the state parks is listening <laughs> to this right now, but in Pennsylvania, I would just host events in Pennsylvania state parks, not knowing that you needed a license to do such a thing. Right. And so yes. I would just do it and just invite people and I would get money for it. And I would always donate back. So they shouldn't be too mad that I was doing this in their parks. I would always donate money back to the parks, but I don't think they knew I was leading events in their parks. And so I would do this. And then one day I get an email saying, uh, you're not allowed to do this. You have to call us ASAP or else we're going to shut down your event that's coming up in two weeks. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I didn't know. And they were really nice about it. And so then I started doing it legally. Right. And then the stuff with the LLC is just for tax purposes alone. It just made more sense for me to incorporate as a business for liability reasons as well. But I kind of just fumbled my way through it and I'm still doing it. I know that there's many things that I'm doing right now that I shouldn't be doing. And eventually I'll have to change paths a little sure. bit, you know, to make it more business-like. I'm having fun trying to figure it out as well. Yeah. That, you know, when you have a passion for something and you want to share it with others, the idea of, for me anyways, when I was starting, the idea of actually making money was kind of, um, taboo. I mean... I, I figured I'll cover my costs. Like I'll just make a little bit, but as you get into it a little bit more, you realize it has to be sustainable. You have to be, and there's so many different pillars that hold up in a business like yours or, or like mine that need to be addressed. And that all requires money. 
you mentioned something earlier. You said, I didn't really have a concept of money. I thought that's kind of interesting. Do you have a concept of money now? Oh, I think about money a lot more right now. Okay. I mean, it's interesting when I run this kind of business, you have to make money to keep going. Mm-hmm. I love providing free content. I really do. But at the end of the day, it costs me thousands of dollars to run my email list. It costs me thousands of dollars to keep the online course going. Mm-hmm. It costs me a lot of money in taxes every year. That I mean, I have no idea where that money's going once I submit it to the government. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, ha- I, I have to ask people who are watching my videos, who are get- getting value out of my videos to exchange value. Mm. Every now and then. Not everybody's going to do it, clearly. 99 point something percent of people will never give you money for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But that's okay, because as long as you can convince some people that what you're doing is valuable, and if you just exchange some of that value back, then I'll be able to continue doing what I'm doing. Like, I don't receive grants for anything. I don't monetize my YouTube channel, at least at this point in time. I've never monetized it. And I have millions like, of views on some of these videos. Yeah, you have like 450,000 subscribers and you've never monetized? No. You okay. know, what's interesting though. A lot of people started saying you should really monetize this. And I thought that's not fair to a lot of people though because I don't like sitting through ads. I, I despise ads. I agree. Anytime I'm watching TV, I don't like commercials. I don't think I've ever purchased something based on an advertisement. But I know that sounds like a bold statement, but I don't think it's ever worked on me. Like I don't, <laughs> they just don't work on me. And I don't want people to have to sit through that stuff. A lot of it's just completely irrelevant anyway. And it's becoming more irrelevant every single day. I'd rather them just get the content. But well, some, some people started coming up to me saying, you know, you should really monetize your YouTube channel. And I thought, okay, so I'll turn, I'll, I'll submit the application to monetize YouTube because you have to like, submit an application to do such Mm. a thing. So I did that and I was approved. Obviously I was approved to do it because I have some subscribers, but I've never hit that turn on monetization on any YouTube videos. That's funny. And so anytime I sell a course, I mean, that's the only way money's coming in. And some people get mad that some of these courses cost a couple dollars, but it costs a lot of money to produce these uh, courses as well. That's funny. And it's not like I'm living in a man. I mean, I have like one plant behind me. There's a cat that lives in the <laughs> It's not like I've got a Rolls Royce parked out back. And a lot of this money just goes back to land conservation. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge believer in donating money to local land conservation trusts as a way to give back. And so I don't keep all the money. I mean, a lot of it goes to the government. A lot yeah. of it goes to the email list, to the software platforms, and to land conservation as well. I, I realize in myself that I have some similar traits to what you're explaining right now. And for a long time ago, I just had to make the decision. Um, I'm not going to look at the money. I'm not going to think about the money. I'm just going to work on the job. Mind you, as money comes in, I'll let the accountants look at the money and think about the money and they can give me a nudge if I need to come on, Trav, we got to do something here. And, uh, But for myself, I found, I I would look at people who just knew all the ins and outs and they had all the spreadsheets and they knew their profit and loss and where it's, where it's at. And it seemed to me anyways, that their attention would be better served 
on the customer base and providing them with the content or the material that, that they're passionate about and the money would be a natural byproduct of that. Provided there's a, there's a mechanism to be able to collect money. Like, I don't know, for example, training on monetization on your YouTube channel, uh, but the money would be a natural byproduct of that. So I, many years ago, just stopped. I've never cared much for, um, for much. I, I like to have kit. I like to have different things. But the, uh, the money concept when you're running a business, particularly when you're starting out is always an interesting one. And I don't think I have the answers to it, but I'm always interested to see how other people approach it. I like your approach. It's smart. Other than that YouTube one, I think that would be an easy one for you to just turn on. And if people don't want to see ads, I'm pretty sure YouTube will get rid of them if you pay like a five buck a month subscription or something. Yeah. I mean, more and more I'm thinking about it and it was a huge step for me to just submit that application to get approved for monetization. Right. And I'm sure it's only a matter of time before I do turn it on because it's getting more expensive to run such a thing. It's interesting. Like the more value you provide, the more subscribers you get, the bigger your email list, you just have to pay more money to manage all this stuff. It just costs more money. Yeah. Uh, and you have to make money somehow or else I'm just going to go back to doing something else that I don't really like indoors, <laughs> wishing I was outside. I don't think that's doing the world a great service by doing that. And people are so used to ads these days anyway. When I watch videos, it's not like I get super mad when I have to click skip ad. But Yeah, after what, two yeah, and a half I mean, seconds, three seconds, skip, right? Or whatever it, the yeah. runtime is. Yeah, so I mean, maybe by the end of this year, we'll see. There might be more ads on my videos. But I'm so, happy to say that I haven't done such a thing yet. <laughs> no, we, we were talking off there, you know, I, I got into foraging to a small degree. I, I love being outside. I never really equated what's around me with things that I could eat unless it was like, I don't know, I was in an apple orchard and I saw an apple on the tree. I'm like, yeah, I could eat that. Right. Um, it was Hank Shaw who actually got me into it and we were foraging for porcinis and then a bunch of other things he took around and, uh, showed me, but it was just like a giant Easter egg hunt and I was good at it and I was able to find things. Once I was told what to look for and just let loose, uh, I, I found it so much fun. And then of course we take that stuff back and we, uh, this was in Sierra Nevada where I was doing it and we went to a restaurant and we took the porcinis and said, Hey, here's some for you guys. Keep them. Can you make us something good out of what we've got here? And they made a, a five course meal with what we'd forage. It was amazing. But that connection, that little light bulb switch, uh, I think when I was getting into it, foraging really wasn't on the radar for anybody in my social circles. I think now though, with people like yourself out there who are providing greater information, I can see it. There's a bit of a resurgence. Are you seeing that? And COVID as well. When everyone got locked up, they want to learn how to fend for themselves and harvest and go outside. Are you seeing that? Yeah, for sure. When I started, there weren't as many people doing this. And I'm sure there were a lot of people back in the 90s saying the same thing or the 80s. I'm sure it's becoming right. slightly more popular, but I think over the past 10 years, it's really taken off. I think there's a lot of reasons behind it. I think more and more people are interested in local foods mm. and wild foods are the epitome of local foods. More and more people are interested in healthy foods. I think people don't trust the food supply uh, or they don't know what's in those foods or sprayed on those foods. And so they feel like they have more control if they just go out and get it themselves. 
and it's really fun. I think people are just more interested in going outside and spending lots of time outside. And plus, right. because social media is so dominant in our lives, you see other people doing it. Where mm. back in the day, I'm sure you just don't see people foraging a lot because you would have to be in the woods or in a natural setting to actually see them doing it. Right. And somebody just driving by might not even know what the heck that person's doing in that field anyway. Right. They might think, oh, they're just like looking for birds. But no, they're picking something or they're foraging something. So I think just because of social media and a lot of people love to post what they're finding. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ego involved, I think, with foraging today. Uh, yeah. It spreads, and other people want that same thrill as well. I don't think it's a bad thing that more and more people are getting into it. I think it's a good thing. Uh, but you're right. I did notice over the years more and more people are doing this. What are, You know, with more people coming out and doing it, so I don't think in BC, I could be wrong. Uh, you might know better. I don't think in BC that we really have ramps out here. Uh or like wild leeks back East though, they're pretty popular. And from what I understand, like certain areas, they either a, you have to get, um, ramp harvesting licenses and you're only allowed so much. And, and some places won't even let you harvest them because it's one of these species that have been, uh, becoming so popular that people are, are wiping them out. Um, is that, is that a, a concern? Is that something that you're seeing as more people enter into the, uh, uh, the foraging world that s certain species are starting to get over harvested species or plants? It's a good question. And personally, I haven't noticed anything, but I haven't been doing this long enough to notice trends. Mm. I've heard lots of people say that ramps are on the decline, but I trust a lot of people who say that, no, they're not. They're just as plentiful as they used to be. Where I live in Pennsylvania, they're not endangered. A lot of people think that they are endangered. They're not. I mean, they're, you could go to areas where there's acres and acres and acres of these things. And in many cases, they do benefit by actually digging them up and thinning the population so that they can continue to expand and grow. But in some areas, they're just not that plentiful. And I think if you go to those areas where they're not plentiful, and then you start harvesting a bunch year after year, that's where over time, obviously, you would see a decline in that population. But I think across the board in eastern North America, ramps are fairly stable. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's, uh, do they have ramps in BC that you know of? I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not an expert on wild foods where I live, but I'm certainly not an expert on wild <laughs> foods all across North America. Sure. Uh, so I'm not quite sure, but I'm sure you could just easily Google that and find out if it grows there. Take a look at that. Definitely. So you, you've actually been to uh, BC before, I understand. I have. Yeah. I don't remember too much because I was younger, and it was for a completely different reason than foraging or getting into nature. I was in the city. I was yeah. in Vancouver and uh, Vancouver Island playing heavy metal. I wish I knew the name of the club. If I Googled it, I'm sure I could come up with the name of it. Um, <laughs> playing heavy metal. I remember Vancouver was kind of a sketchy place. We were in some pretty interesting areas of Vancouver. Uh -huh. uh, Vancouver Island was very, very nice, I remember. Yeah. But we didn't spend much time there. You know, when you're on tour, you're in a city for like eight hours and then you're on to the next city. Then you're on to the next city. Right. So you really don't get to experience like all that the city has to offer. But it was a lot of fun at the time. I'd so, love to come back sometime, but so I don't know when that'll be. A bit of a dichotomy between uh, foraging and at peace and a one in the nature and touring cities in a heavy metal band. Something happened in my life. I don't know what it was though, but I did a complete 180. Like really, I was totally into music and 
I was playing heavy metal because it worked. Like people loved seeing us play heavy metal. Mm. It's not like I was the biggest heavy metal fan that was out there. But after a while, you just you have to stick with the style that got you where you are. Mm -hmm. You can't like change radically or your fans don't want to hear that kind of music, which is why like the Ramones never changed or Motley Crue never changed. You know, they just keep playing the same stuff over and over and over again. So I listened to a lot of other music at the time, but heavy metal worked. Uh, mm. But over time, I just felt like it wasn't for me, you know, singing about knives and <laughs> fair enough, devils and uh, killing and all that stuff. I mean, it's all for entertainment. It wasn't like my true heart, my passion coming out of me, but it was a lot of fun at the time. And I learned a lot and I got to travel. I have so many good memories from that time, but something happened in my life where I just completely shifted gears. And I went down the nutrition rabbit hole and then got into nature. And I'm you know, glad that I did. Like, I wouldn't have it any other way. I've, I've never, growing up, I never equated what I ate with how I felt. And it wasn't until much, much later in my life, embarrassingly so, that I finally started to equate, hey, if I eat crap food, I feel like crap. Like, I'd go out camping for a week and come back and like, ah, I'm not feeling super great. And my wife's like, well, wh what'd you eat? Oh, you know, hot dogs and cheesies and beer. She's like, do you think maybe that's got something to do with it? Like, no, no, probably not. Right. Um, of course it did. The, uh, the use of wild plants and herbs and, uh, and mushrooms out there for medicinal benefits is something aside from the nutrition side, making you feel better. The medicinal side is something that, uh, that you're passionate about from, from what I see on your, what you're posting. How did you get into that? I was lucky that when I got into nutrition, I started studying from mentors that were into foraging. I don't know how it happened. I mean, it depends who you follow and whose circles you hang around, but these teachers were foragers as well. And they were really interested in the medicinal side of things, not just foraging for calories, but foraging for medicine. Mm. And I just became swept away by that idea. And I started spending a lot of time looking for medicinal mushrooms specifically, also medicinal, medicinal plants, but to a large degree, medicinal mushrooms. Okay. And this is at a time also when medicinal mushrooms were becoming more popular. So I kind of like rode that wave for a long time. Mm. And at the end of the day, you know, looking back on that, I, I mean, I still look for medicinal mushrooms. And I still consume them. And I still know that they're extremely valuable, at least in my life. But I think the most medicinal thing about the mushrooms for me is that they've kept me tethered to the forest. They mm. keep me outside. They keep me looking for other things in nature. And it's not necessarily the beta-glucans or the polysaccharides, which are all great. And I know I benefit from their consumption. But it's just being glued to the forest and not wanting to leave. And I think a lot of people don't talk about those benefits. And those are benefits that you don't get eating foods from the grocery store. Right. Because you just, you don't have that kind of connection. And even if you're tethered to the grocery store, it's like, that's not much of an achievement. No. no but being isn't. tethered to nature, to me, that's like very admirable, you know, to never want to leave such a situation or scenario. And so over the years when people ask me like, well, what's the use of this? Or what's the use of that? I think, well, it made you stop and look at it and made you learn it and made you forget about the other worldly affairs for just a couple seconds. And maybe you'll come back and learn something else. And that's, what's been a good benefit to me over the years, just doing those kinds of things and being tethered to the forest through medicinal mushrooms. 
That's an awesome perspective. I, you know, everyone understands that there is a healing element to being out in nature. They feel calm when they're by the, at the ocean and they're watching the waves crash in and the sun sets They're in the forest. If provided they're not, uh, wrought with anxiety because they're afraid of whatever might lurk around the next tree, uh, most people find that there's a, a very calming effect to all of that. But not everybody has the ability, or maybe they just have prioritized their lives in a certain way where they're, they're more stuck in a, in a big city. Um, do you ever do anything with, with urban foraging? Cause I know that's sort of a, a trend that seems to be fairly popular. That's how I started. That's how I started learning all this stuff. Even yeah. when I started Learn Your Land, I was living in the city of Pittsburgh. And some of those early videos literally were filmed in the city of Pittsburgh. It's just, I found a patch of green where I filmed. But if you listen <laughs> carefully, you'll hear the trains, you'll hear the sirens, you'll hear the cars, you'll see people walking in the background. Yeah, you could totally do it in the city. But I would also recommend trying to get out of the city as much as possible. But mm. I wouldn't use it as an excuse just because you live in the city that you have to like put your education on hold. But I was going to the University of Pittsburgh at the time that I was getting into nutrition and I would walk four miles every day, two miles to get there, two miles to get back. And I would learn every plant along the way, every tree along the way, every bird along the way. That's what I did. And if there was a plant that I didn't know, I would make sure I knew it to where I knew every single plant because I would do it year after year after year. And so I was very good at knowing those kinds of things, like urban plants. But once I got into wilder areas, I didn't really know as much until I kind of moved away from the city a little bit and started spending more time in wilder places. But as far as urban foraging, a lot of people do it. It can be done. I think you just have to be a little more mindful of the pollutants that could be in that particular area mm. because there could be a lot. Uh, and if you're in a wilder space, it's not to say there's no pollutants in those areas because there certainly are. But I think there's less, generally speaking, compared to an urban environment. Right. Yeah, maybe less garbage being thrown on the side that something's growing out of. But uh, where where would where would you point somebody who wants to start? Who says, "Look, at I'm I'm learning about this eat local, um, farm to table, and I want to I want to start dipping my toes in the water." What What would you tell a person? So I would tell them what worked for me because I can only speak based on experience. And it's not like you read these things like a list of five things on how to start foraging. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some blogs on that, but I never came across that information. But for me, it was always find an event where somebody's teaching these skills. It could be a wildflower walk. It could be a bird walk. It could be a tree identification walk. It could be a mushroom walk. It doesn't matter what it is. As long as it's some nature skill, find those events and go on those events because you're not just going to pick up the birding skills on a bird walk mm. or the mushroom skills on a mushroom walk. There are people on those walks that if you connect with them, they'll teach you other things. Like I, I started learning trees on mushroom walks because people would teach me the differences between red oaks and white oaks and maples and hackberries and different trees just on mushroom walks. And when I was starting, there were a decent number of these walks that were available around Pittsburgh, but nowadays there's way more available. And actually, when I started Learn Your Land, it was originally a database to kind of compile a list of all these events where they were happening. And then I kind of got away uh. from that because I didn't want to be stuck behind a computer plugging away all these different events and <laughs> managing this. I'm not a software developer. I don't know that stuff. I would rather right. be outside filming myself teaching people. 
Um, so that didn't quite work out. But if you just, you know, use a search engine, type in your area in wildflower walk or birding walk or mushroom walk, or inquire at a local state park or an environmental center or an arboretum and just go on some of these walks. You might be the oldest person on the walk. <laughs> you might be the youngest person on the walk. But as long as you go on these events, you're going to feel more comfortable out there. You're going to meet incredible people and they're going to teach you some things that you never knew you wanted to learn. You know, I'm, you've brought up trees a couple of times now and you, from what I understand, you've had a little bit of a maybe secret, not so secret passion about trees for last number of years, which has culminated in a brand new course that you've put together on trees and tree identification. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes. So for the past two and a half years, it's all been trees for me. Yeah. Despite what you see on YouTube and on my Facebook and Instagram posts, you know, I'll still put the mushrooms out there. I'll still put the plants out there. But almost every single day, I've been looking at trees. I've been studying trees. I've been visiting trees. I've been saying no to a lot of things just so I could spend more time with trees. All because I was putting together an online tree identification course. And I finally released it just a couple of days ago. Uh, so if somebody's listening to this or watching this, and if you try to gain access to the course, there are closed seasons for it and there's open seasons for it. Uh, so you can just put your name on the notification list and then you'll get an email whenever it's open again. But yeah, I've been obsessed with trees lately and I love it. It's done so much for me. And I had no idea that by saying yes to this project to study trees, that it would do the kinds of things that it has done for me. It's been such a blessing. And the project is kind of, it's not over, but a lot of the work has already been done. And I'm kind of having that like, you know, I get, I've never had a kid before, but I imagine like if you have a kid, you kind of <laughs> miss having it in the womb for a while. And then this you're like, oh. Pride. Yeah, you know, and then it like grows up and like you don't have as much control over it anymore. Mm. And I kind of feel that way, but I'm still putting content into it. And it's just, I have no other word other than blessing to describe what it's done for me over the years. And I know that if other people listening to this learn their trees, it could do the same for them. So, okay, so many questions. First one, just not about trees, more about the course in general. What do you mean open season and closed season? Like it's an online course. Can't someone just click on the thing and, and take it whenever? So the course is entirely go at your own pace. All the videos, all the content, all the downloads are immediately and always available to you once you sign up. But because I'm the only instructor, I take it very seriously when students email me with questions. And students are always encouraged to email me with questions. And I prioritize people who have bought my courses, <laughs> obviously, because they paid a lot of money for this stuff. And I'm sure. not going to leave them hanging compared to some random like YouTuber who leaves some nasty comment about my mouth or something like that, because it happens from time <laughs> to time. Uh, so <laughs> there are closed seasons only because when people sign up for this course, I find that they generally work through the course during a certain chunk of time. And because I'm the only instructor, I'm the only person that can email these people back. Mm. And also because this was the first launch of this course, in case there's mistakes or in case there's any issues with a software platform, it's kind of like a beta launch and I'm going to mm. get the feedback tweak some things and then reopen it and make it better. And I Smart. did that with the mushroom course that I previously released. And every time I would relaunch it, there was new there were new things in there and it was a letter, little better every time. And I'm able to be more present with students as they work through it rather than, you know, somebody signed up for it in July, somebody signed up for it in November, somebody's at the very beginning, somebody's halfway through it. Mm. It's just easier for me as an instructor to deal with it that way. And I don't have to 
sell myself constantly if it's always open. Right. I feel like if it was always open, more of my emails would be like, hey, don't forget, Trees in All Seasons is open. Don't forget, Trees in All Seasons is open. That's the name right. of the course, Trees in All Seasons. But if I just limit that window, you're only going to get those emails for maybe three weeks out of the year when it's open. Mm. Because honestly, I I don't really enjoy selling. I like getting, giving free content out. It just feels better to give free content out. Mm-hmm. But I have to in order to keep this machine running. So what kind of things can a person learn on the, the mushroom course or the tree course? What can they expect to see in something like that? I, I'm used to learning from field guides because a lot of people, that's how they learn mushrooms or that's how they learn plants. And a lot of people also learn online these days. But one thing that's always missing is seeing things in its natural setting. Mm. Not in 3D, but you know, you see the natural environment, you hear the bird sounds, you see what else is growing around it. And with a field guide or with an app, you just see a picture and it's very static and it's very lifeless and you don't see what else is going on. Mm. So with these mushroom courses or with the tree course, you see me out there finding the thing. Like I'm present with the organism in 100% of the videos. It's not like it's a PowerPoint presentation. Like if you go to a garden club and somebody's talking about a tree and it's like, it's almost like a slideshow, like grandma's trip to the Bahamas or something. You know, she's flipping through all the slides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, with this, you know, I'm standing right in front of the tree. I'm finding it. I'm describing it to you. And with the tree course specifically, you're getting footage in every single season, which is something that, as far as I'm concerned, you don't find in any field guide. You just right. find the leaves, the bark, maybe the fruits, maybe right. the flowers, and that's about it. But you don't get the winter silhouette. You don't always get the twigs. You don't get the male flowers. You don't get the little female flowers. You don't get the stipules on the leaves. But with this, why it took two and a half years is I committed to getting every single feature I could possibly get in every season. And I packaged it together so that you basically start from the beginning. I almost treat it as if you don't even know what a tree is in the Mm. beginning. And I know it sounds like it's so basic. Why would you treat students like that? But I want to start from the very beginning and then build your skills from there. Mm-hmm. And I think with field guides and with apps, they don't teach you how to learn. Mm-hmm. They just give you the answers, but they don't teach you the process of actually learning so that once you're done, you can go out and learn any tree based on the skills that are presented to you in this kind of course. I like that. A funny side uh, anecdote. My kid's school, I mean, we're in a outside the city, but it's built up enough over here and the kid's elementary school we would go there and they'd have birch bullets and we'd pick those when they, when they pop up or shaggy manes or sheep sorrel or salmon berries. There's a quince tree, I guess was neglected, but at some point someone had planted on the side. And so we'd, whenever the quince was in season, we'd go and grab that and, um, stinging nettle as well, because, uh, uh, I, I guess it's supposed to help with, uh, with allergies. The kids say it does. Um, but the school sends us a letter back. And says, can you stop showing your kids to pick things around the school because they're showing others and we've got all of our kids running around eating crap out of the ground, right? And uh, I told my wife we should frame that that photo there. It's a very, I, and I guess from their standpoint, there's a safety aspect if somebody goes and picks a wrong thing and goes and eats it and I can, and I can appreciate that. But there's a, a disconnect that I think that most people people have between what's actually growing around them and what they can, what they can use, what's going to have some healthy benefits for them or medicinal benefits, or maybe just taste good in a salad. Um, have, 
have you noticed that disconnect and is that something that you're working at trying to change? Yeah, of course I noticed that disconnect. I mean, I I never had the experience of forging around the schoolyard growing up. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that you know some of the teachers or some of the staff would be upset that they would picking things that are potentially dangerous, but I would say most of the food in that cafeteria is probably way more dangerous than anything that you could pick outside. <laughs> and I, yeah. I mean, I honestly believe that too. Yeah. When you think about poisonous plants or poisonous mushrooms, relatively speaking, there are few of them mm. compared to what's edible, medicinal, or benign. Mm. I mean, people think that when you're foraging for mushrooms that that could be a poisonous one. And it could be. There are poisonous mushrooms out there. But when you look at how many species there are, the poisonous ones only make up a small amount of mm. them. And the same goes for the plants as well. Now, I'm not saying you should just blindfold yourself and pick this stuff, but you're not, the risks aren't as great as a lot of people make them out to be. And especially mm. if you teach people young, which is when, you know, people are probably going to learn this information the, the fastest and the best. It's important to teach people what foods are appropriate and what foods are not appropriate. And I wish somebody told me growing up that the foods in the center aisles of the grocery store are not appropriate for my body, but it took me a long time to figure that out. And you were talking about, you know, how it took you a while to figure out that the foods that you're eating were actually affecting your body. <laughs> totally. I didn't realize that until I was 19. I looked in the mirror and I saw these red spots all over my face. And I thought, does this have anything to do with diet at all? Mm. And so I just started experimenting and I thought, well, maybe it does have to do with diet. And it does. I mean, there are some things that I eat that'll make me break out. And there's some things that if I avoid, I'm not going to break out. Of course, it's 100% dietary related. But as far as the connection with nature and the disconnect today, I mean, it's greater than it's ever been, I feel. A lot of people are disconnected. I still feel disconnected as well. I mean, I think the reason I'm doing a lot of this work is to feel more connected to the place where I belong. Mm. And I think... I mean, for me, I'm not so interested in that. I'm not so interested in traveling the world and finding all the edible plants and finding all the trees and finding all the mushrooms. And a lot of people are into that. Mm. And I think that's only a symptom of the disconnect. Mm. I think if you truly wanted to be connected to nature, you would connect to the land where you live. And that's why I talk up Pennsylvania so much in my videos. I want to feel connected to home. I'm trying every single day. I'm trying by learning the names of the other organisms, by learning the different ecosystems, by eating the things, by drinking the spring water that's here, by hunting the animals that live around here. I want to feel like I belong to this place. And I think that's why I kind of stopped focusing so much exclusively on mushrooms and I went to trees. Because at a certain point with mushrooms, you just want to start traveling and seeing what mushrooms grow in Malaysia or what mushrooms grow in Mexico or what mushrooms grow up in Alaska mm. rather than let me just stay here and learn what's here. Because the important thing here is I want to feel connected to home. I want a home base. And so I thought, well, let's just shift gears a little bit and learn the trees that are here. And after I'm done with the trees, maybe I'll learn something else. But to a large degree, I think it's going to be trying to connect to Western Pennsylvania for me rather than traveling the world, trying to connect to different species that grow all over the world. I don't think it's a bad thing, but if your goal is to connect to nature, I think you have to put limitations on what nature is to you because I don't think it's the whole entire world. I don't think humans are very good at conceptualizing what the globe actually is or what the world is, Mm. but a home base, I think people can conceptualize that. And you see the surrogates, you know, people connect to a sports team. 
or to their local township or their alma mater, their college. I think these are all surrogates for like Western Pennsylvania or the mountains here in Western or central Pennsylvania is where the mountains would be, but Mm. you get the point. Yeah. I like that. You know, and and you're right. It is, people are quite often in day-to-day conversations. I find people are of course disconnected. Uh, I think social media, uh, having devices in front of us all the time, the level of connectivity that we have in interconnectivity that all of our devices have. I, I forgot to put my phone on, uh, uh, airplane mode when we're talking, you might've heard a beep come on through and it's always these little things taking our attention away from just being present. And that doesn't mean that you have to travel far out into the middle of nowhere in order to be present, just slowing down and taking a look in your own backyard and your own park and taking your time to go through the different plants and the different animals that you see and observing their behavior and what grows by, by what I think has got a very calming effect and a very beneficial effect for people's mental health. But it's tough when you're competing with, with all of this. And for you, I mean, you're outside we see you outside, we see you outside on YouTube, people are back on their phone and it's kind of a funny little circle and you've got a phone or some device that you're filming yourself with and, and talking to, it's, it's not like it's something that we're ever going to be able to completely break away from. And it sounds like you've found a bit of a recipe to be able to embrace the technology to a certain degree to help facilitate that you facilitate you to be able to get outside. I mean, I, I see the irony in it as well, like bringing technology out and technology has always been with humans. I mean, the bow and arrow, that's technology, the rifle, that's technology traps, that's technology as well. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's how you define it. But for me, I'm very careful. I'm very intentional with technology. Like I understand what I'm using. I see what it's doing to my life and I see what it does to other people as well. So I'm very careful about what I choose to bring into my life. And that's why I just, I don't own a lot of stuff to begin with. I mean, look at this room. There's like a plant back there. There's a pull-up bar back in that corner to keep me nice and strong. So I don't have a lot of stuff in my life to begin with. And I learned this concept years ago from a guy named Stuart Wilde, which is just touch things in your life. And if you don't need it, get rid of it. Literally, Mm. just go through everything in your life and just touch it and hold it. Do you need this thing? Would it be better just to give it to somebody else or to just get rid of it? then just get rid of it. Mm. But when I go out into nature, I mean, you said something about a phone. I don't, I mean, that getting out into nature for me, that gets me away from phones because I don't have a smartphone. So I, once I leave the house for any reason whatsoever, I do not have access to the internet. And sometimes I'm gone for days on these trips, which means I'm not constantly checking a little device. I mean, I could check the time on a flip phone, mm-hmm. I can check my alarm clock, or I can check texts. But as far as the internet... I can leave that behind for a couple of days, which is kind of interesting to say for somebody who leads an online business and who has to be accountable right. to a lot of students. But I try my best to, to let people know, you know, I might be gone for a couple of days and I tell people where I'm going. But even when I'm out in nature, I don't have a lot of technology with me. It's largely me and the trees and the mushrooms and just trying to have a good time. So are mushrooms still a pretty big part of your life? Yeah, I mean, they'll always be a part of my life. Yeah. It's just they're not always going to be the the focus of the content that I teach mm. because a lot of other people are doing it these days and they're doing it very well. 
And how many times can you talk about morale mushrooms? And how many times can you talk about chicken in the woods? <laughs> I think you have to naturally evolve. You know, it's kind of interesting because I used to play in this thrash metal band. Yeah. But that defined a certain period in my life. And I'm glad I moved away from it. But there are some people who still play that thrash metal until they're 50, 60, 70 mm-hmm. years old. And they still do that thing that defined them as a kid or as an mm-hmm. adolescent. And they don't move beyond that. And I'm wondering if some of these things that I'm doing right now, even teaching mushrooms, even teaching trees, if this is almost like an adolescent stage in my development, and I'm going to move into a deeper realm teaching people about nature. You know, I don't know what that's going to look like in the future, but I don't know if I'm going to focus so much on the what as much as I will on the why. And I think a lot of people these days on Instagram, on Facebook, myself included, we focus too much on the what. Like literally, Mm -hmm. if you go on any nature walk, and I know I talked up nature walks before, and I still Mm -hmm. strongly recommend going on them. I love them. I still lead them from time to time. There's a big focus on the what. Here's what this is. This is what this thing is doing. This is the name of this thing. But less do you hear, here's why it's important to be out here. Here's why this thing is here. Here's why it's important to learn this thing. Here's why you and this thing should develop a connection with one another. And I see myself probably being pulled in that direction in the future. I think that's a very smart move. I think it's a natural progression and it's completely counterintuitive to how most things are approached. Everything starts with from the, the what, the how, uh, the why is what drives people. And really the why is what people can identify with. I think Simon Sinek, you ever see the, the golden circle and the, the why and you're nodding your head there, but the why is why somebody will want to actually learn these different things and retain it and share it with others and actually gain value out of it because it'll, it'll speak to them. That's, um, uh, that's it. I've never heard somebody talk about foraging or nutrition in that sort of a perspective. I'm sure other people have, I've just never heard of it. How do you see that working? I agree with what you said. You don't hear a lot of people talking about it. And I think it's because on social media, it doesn't do as well. Ah. Like lists of things that you found and the names of things and the sexy bird that you found over here, or the mushroom or this cool shot of something that does very well. I mean, those mm. things tend to go viral. You get all the likes, you get all the shares, you get all the follows because of them. But when you start like philosophizing, people start rolling their eyes and they just want to scroll <laughs> into the next thing because it's more than three sentences long, you know, mm. because a why can't always be summed up in like a fridge magnet quote. Mm-hmm. You need explanations with a lot of this stuff. And so it takes some time to get into that. And I think people's attention spans are just shot these days yes. <laughs> because of social media to a very large degree. It's just we want things right now. We want to see the image and then we want to be on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to capture someone's attention with a why just by posting something super quickly and letting mm. them capture that. Oh, yeah, yeah, got that. And then move on to the next thing. It just takes more brain power. I think it takes more thought and contemplation to understand someone's why and to figure out actually what your why is as well. And so I'm trying to figure out how to navigate that in the future, trying to stay relevant, teaching people mm. online but maybe in a longer form content, which might not do as well on Instagram or on Facebook. Certainly not on TikTok. I mean, like, <laughs> no. Good luck trying to get that stuff out there on TikTok. Um, 
But I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll be more uh, smaller circles of people where I'll lead events and they'll come and we'll spend some time in the woods for a while because it takes a long time. It's not going to even take a three-day weekend event to get this kind of information across. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what that looks like yet. It's just I'm thinking about these things moving forward. I like that. You know, you keep that in the back of your head. It'll become a reality for whatever reason. What do they say? What a man thinks he will do, right? Whether it's manifest destiny, whether it's we think about this thing long enough and all of a sudden uh, our perspective changes and everything kind of rolls into place and say, oh yeah, see, it was always happening and you kind of reframe it in your head. Or if, if it's like the matrix and you're authoring your own destiny essentially, but I, I firmly believe that if you continue down that path and you keep that in the back of your head, you will be successful with it. You might have to do the what in order to generate enough people and eyes looking at it in order to create the why. And it seems that's kind of the way now, but, uh, I can definitely see that as a, uh, as something that would be beneficial for people to, to wrap their heads around. Yeah. You know, even when I have conversations with people and they, they assume and rightfully so they assume that I geek out on like the names of things, you know, mm -hmm. the plants that they found and the mushrooms that they found. But that stuff just doesn't like penetrate my soul, you know? Mm. I would so much rather hear somebody just like share some very deep challenges that they're going through in life or the relationship with love or the relationship with money or <laughs> right. what drives them, you know? Even what drives them to want to put names on things. Like I want to know that stuff. And I think people fear getting into those areas. Well, I don't think a lot of humans are very good at just like tapping into those deeper selves myself included, like it's hard to get there. It's a lot easier to put a name on something than to express why you love such a thing and why somebody else might want to fall in love with it as well. And in fact, you never see the word love being tossed around in any ecological circles anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you read ecology textbooks or botany textbooks, I don't think the word love is printed in those texts once at all. And it's like, do the authors not love what they do? Well, why not put it in there? Like how amazing would that be to see the word love in some of those books and to actually mean it as well? Mm -hmm. I think people crave it though. I think there's a reason why people are drawn to certain things within social media. I know that the reward, the dopamine release and all the rest of how we look at something, you got your fix and then you want the next one and you're trying to keep that up. But I think that's creating a deficit in people's lives, which is why long form conversations are becoming more of a, um, an accepted thing. Like you have a podcast, the idea of a podcast 20 years ago and people would, would laugh. Who's going to want to take a look at this? People want that now because they want to, they either lack that connectivity within their life currently, and they want to somehow feel it and have it involved, or they're, they're realizing that there's more that they can get than just what a simple snippet will give them or a list of the five best things that you're going to get. It doesn't speak to their deep seated why. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, is there anything that we should be talking about that we haven't talked about? This is a very different podcast than what I thought it was going to be when I first got into it. I have a whole bunch of different notes, but I really enjoy kind of where this has gone. Is there anything that you think we should be touching on that perhaps we haven't? 
I mean, not that I can think of, but you're not the first person to say that. I think a lot of people want to steer the conversation one way and I tend to go off in another direction. Oh, <laughs> so I'm that's ha- all on me, I think. I don't think it's your fault. I think No, I not at all. I'm happy to ride to the direction. Yeah, whichever way the uh, the conversation goes, is there's no need to steer it in a certain certain area. I much prefer just to have an open and honest conversation rather than have a list of questions that we kind of go through and 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 peg off. I think the value to the listener is far superior if we're able to talk about these things that, that most people aren't. Not everybody has that comfort level though. So you're not going to ask me what my favorite mushroom is? <laughs> were you waiting for that one? <laughs> <laughs> it's a common question. <laughs> oh, I believe it is. I believe it is. No, we don't uh, have to get there. I was just joking. <laughs> but your relationship with cash is probably not a more common question. Yeah, not at all. I mean, that got me thinking as well. Like, I, I really wonder what my relationship with cash is. Whether you're holding cash or not, I mean, is it even smart to hold cash these days? I don't know. I don't know. A friend of mine, he shows me a bunch of gold that he's collecting and... Okay. I, I get it. I get the rationale behind it from a prepper standpoint. Other people talk about everything moving to a digital currency. Okay. I can, I can see why, why, uh, that would be a push. Um, what, what do they say in fight club? What you own owns you, right? The more things that you want to own, the more things you're tied to. And it was kind of like that, what you're saying before you pick it up, you hold it. Do I need this? Well, you probably say no to most of those objects in your life. Do you want it? Well, Kind of, right? I kind of want it because I like to have stuff and I want to have things around me and I've been collecting for so long and, but is it bringing you any joy? Good question. The other thing is a lot of the things that you own end up tying you down, right? You can't just take off at the drop of a hat. You can't head out into the bush for a long period of time if there's things that you have to maintain or, uh, or look after or afraid that they're, that something's going to happen to them. Yeah. I mean, one thing about money, and I've realized this over the years is that for me, it's not about buying the fanciest stuff, but I see that in order to conserve land today, you need a lot of money to do so. Mm -hmm. Like if there's a developer coming in and tearing apart this pristine wooded area that maybe has a hundred year old oak trees in it because it was sold off and now they're going to put a housing plan there. If you don't have more money than, than that developer, you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. You could say, look, but I'm going to take care of this wooded area. I'm going to plant more trees here, or I'm going to turn this into a nature preserve. And so a lot of people are going to benefit for their mental health, for their spiritual side and all this different stuff. Mm-hmm. People don't care about that. They just want your money. That's it. And it's not like I love money, but I understand that if land is to be conserved today in the 21st century... Money has to be part of that deal. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't donate to land conservation trusts. Mm-hmm. And so that's why through my online courses and any money that I generate, a good portion of that money actually goes directly to land conservation. And it's not like I don't trust people to donate on their own, but mm-hmm. I know that as long as they give me some money, I'm going to funnel that to land conservation. And so that's another relationship to money that I'm figuring out over the years that there is a direct connection between money and land. It's been that way for a long time. I don't think it's going away anytime soon, but man, if I had the money that like Bill Gates has or Elon Musk has, imagine how much, imagine what you could protect with that kind of money. Just Mm -hmm. imagine like any parcel of land, you would never be able to develop on it ever again. 
and not saying in some instances it's not wise to develop. Like I understand in some areas it might be necessary in order to raise some people out of poverty, in order to bring more value to the area, economically speaking. I'm not like totally anti-development because mm. I live in an area that was developed. But a lot of it's just reckless development. And I think a lot of people understand that. And if you've got some money, you can prevent a lot of this reckless development. I don't have that money yet, but who knows? <laughs> yet. But you watch, you watch, you put that in your head, uh, starting to set that roadmap in order to get yourself there and, and you'll get there. Might take a while, um, surrounding yourself with people who've already done that path and gotten there and learning some of the shortcuts definitely helps. And it sounds like you've got a few people that you're, uh, you're using as mentors as you, uh, have been building and growing your business, which is important. Okay. Well, I mean, that was, uh, we, we didn't go down the favorite mushrooms. We didn't go down the, uh, uh, the five point checklist of what to look for. But I think what, uh, what you brought up and what we did touch on, which is getting to the why. And I really like the, the concept of the, uh, okay. So these plants are healthy and they have medicinal benefits, but the fact that you're going out and learning and getting outside and you're searching for them and it's essentially putting you into a forced presence is extremely healthy and the benefits from that are, uh, could, could meet or exceed what the plant is actually going to do for you. I like that perspective. I haven't heard people, I haven't heard people talk about it like that before. Yeah. And maybe because it's obvious to a lot of people, and, you know, anytime I see a study on the benefits of nature connection or, you know, people in a hospital who have access to a window can see outside actually mm -hmm. heal faster than the people who don't. To me, it's like, of course. Of course, of course, of course. It's just so obvious to me. And it's kind of funny in a way that money is being put towards those kind of studies. It's like, mm. well, how many more of the studies do you need in order for us to finally change our connection to nature and actually to spend more time with wild places and to protect more wild places? And so it's almost like studying trees. You know, with trees, they're so obvious and they're right in front of you that people just don't see them. Mm -hmm. Why would I want to learn trees? No, it's important to learn trees because you'll understand ecology a lot more if you learn trees compared to learning mushrooms or learning plants or learning birds. You know, when I was filming this tree course, I could be looking directly at a tree, putting my camera right there. And people will always say, what are you looking at? <laughs> what insect do you see? Yeah. Or what bird do you see? Every time, without fail. There's never been one instance where somebody said, what tree are you looking at? And yeah. I mean, I'm right in front of the tree. They always, 100% of the time, think you're looking at something else. And I, I say, I eventually started saying, you know what? You're going to be really disappointed what I have to say, but I'm looking at red spruce. <laughs> and they're like, oh, something yeah. on, like an insect on red spruce? No, no. Like, I'm just looking at the tree. Like, I'm studying this tree or I'm filming this tree. And it catches them off guard every single time. But it's the same thing with these nature studies. It's like... It's so obvious that you would spend more time in nature and you would feel better. But for some mm. reason, people don't make that connection and they'll just sit inside and sit in their office all day. And I understand that a lot of people have to do that now, but your life will be so much better to the extent that you could spend more time outside as much mm. as you possibly can. Even 20 minutes a day can make a world of a difference in your life. Adam, love the conversation. Thank you very much for being on the Silver Core podcast. This was fantastic. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. We should do it again sometime. I think we will. <laughs> <laughs>